0: Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Kurash, CEO and co founder of Enato, a global clinical trial platform that's raised over 35 million in funding. Kurash, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. So, to kick things off, can we maybe just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background?
1: Sure. So, I come from a family where virtually everyone has been in the medical field for ages, either as a doctor, a pharmacist, a lab scientist. If you think about even my siblings, I'm the only one of all of them who decided not to go to medical school. Some part of it was that I'm a little bit geeky, very passionate about maths and physics. And anyhow, I would faint whenever I would see blood as a kid. So not a great quality for a doctor. I was basically out of the family business at this point. And I ended up pursuing an engineering degree, which was absolutely fascinating to me. Out of college, the only thing I knew is I wanted to build something from scratch, but didn't really have any idea of what, I mean, you come out of college. You don't really know anything about any industry. I definitely knew I didn't want to go into B2C. So I ended up building a startup that was in the trucking industry. It never really took off, but it was super interesting to me in terms of knowing what I enjoy and what I'm not interested in. It was very clear to me coming out of this, that I need a mission that I'm really passionate about and. Logistics definitely wasn't it. I had piles of supply chain magazine on my bedrest, And for the life of me, I couldn't open a single one. And I wanted to build something outside of France. There is this sense when you're in France, it's an amazing country to live in, but it's a very small market. So this is how I ended up starting Inato, even though I knew literally nothing about clinical research at the time. But I was really excited about the idea of serving patients, about the idea of doing something for the greater good. And I love the fact that research overall is very global. It was a perfect opportunity for us
0: to build something global from day one. You know, your early story sounds very similar to another founder I had on and their whole family, they they were doctors. He went to Harvard Medical School. He dropped out, ended up starting a, a health tech company that's now worth about $3 billion. And he said to this day, his family still doesn't understand what he does. They're still you know, kind of disappointed that he didn't pursue this career in as a doctor, even though he's built this you know, multi-billion dollar company. Did you have something similar with your family? Like, do they get the route that you went down? Like, do they understand the idea of a tech startup and how that's, you know, just an exciting career path as opposed to going down the more traditional paths? Yeah, I think they're starting to.
1: Initial, probably four or five years, they were very supportive, but I feel like they were very worried. They really didn't understand what I was doing at all. And I feel like now, now that we've gotten better traction, it's getting better. But but it's funny because it's a track record that I see. Everywhere around me, maybe one out of three people that end up joining Inato have a very similar story of coming from a family of doctors and being super interested and passionate about the field, but being a doctor or a nurse, not being the right fit for them.
0: Who would you say has inspired you in terms of founders and entrepreneurs? You know, where does that inspiration come from?
1: So I'm a really big fan of what the Airbnb founders have built for a couple of reasons. The first one is I really admire founders that have built generational companies without any obvious tailwinds. If you think about Google, for example, it feels like if they hadn't existed, there would have been another Google-like, probably around the same period, which obviously doesn't take anything away from how exceptional they were in terms of execution. But to some degree, it feels like amazing companies were destined to exist in those fields at that time. On the contrary, if you think about Airbnb or to some degree, Tesla, it feels like if they hadn't existed, the hospitality industry, the electric car industry probably would not have changed significantly for like a decade or so. And to me, that really resonates because when you're in the healthcare industry, when you're in the pharma industry, it feels like things have not been moving for ages. It's hard to identify precisely what is the huge tailwind that is going to be at the origin of the next great generation of tech companies in the field. And the second piece I really love about Airbnb is I find marketplaces really fascinating and to me, they're probably the greatest marketplace that was ever built in terms of the size and the significance of the supply that they unlocked in terms of the brand they built, in terms of the user experience that is just beautiful and Unlike, for example, an Uber, it's such a complex transaction, like before they built it, the idea of having someone stay at your home in terms of trust building on the internet was just insane. So yeah,
0: really amazed
1: by everything they achieved.
0: Yeah. It's funny when you think about what they pulled off, they managed to make it so that we were okay with sleeping in strangers' houses and okay with getting in strangers' cars, two of the things that your parents, you know, taught you when you were a little kid, don't do that under any means, but they, uh, they somehow convinced the world to do it. So that's been pretty fascinating to see. Yeah, exactly. And and
1: now it's, um, it's a no brainer. Like you, you're going to travel. You're going to look at both Airbnb and hotels the same way. Yep. Absolutely.
0: What about books? The way we like to frame this, this comes from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? Yeah. So there's a book called Complexity by Mitchell Waldrop.
1: That is a really fascinating book. That's about the history of science and how after the very beginning of the 20th century, basically no one was ever again an expert in their field. And early 1970s, 1980s, scientists started getting together to think about how can we solve problems like the stock market, the human immune system, the spread of epidemies, and no single discipline was really able to tackle this. So the whole book is about the birth of the Santa Fe Institute and how they brought scientists that would never talk together. And what to me was super interesting is it's a really great tale of collaboration, which for us in the healthcare industry is something that you cannot succeed without. I think Silicon Valley often has this notion of tech outsiders that come in and single-handedly revolutionize a sector. And I think clearly in the healthcare industry, this
0: is something that never works. Hmm, Super interesting. I haven't read that book, but I'll add it to the Amazon cart here right after this interview. Let's switch gears now and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So how we like to start this portion of the interview is really talking about the problem. So at a very high level, what problem are you solving? The problem we're solving is
1: a problem that really hasn't changed for the past, probably 25 years, which is that less than 5% of patients have access to trials. And of those patients who have access to trials, a very small minority are diverse. And this has been not only a huge problem in terms of equity of access to treatments but it's also the main driver behind why it takes 15 years and 2 billion dollars to get a drug to market and increasingly people have realized that it's a huge issue in terms of the validity of the drug working and not working on all populations the example that always strikes me and I find horrible is there was a retrospective study on a drug that came to market for breast cancer. And out of the about 8,000 patients that were in the different trials, only three patients were African-American in the disease that predominantly affects African-Americans. So when you're in that type of situation, you don't even know if the drug that comes to market really works on African-Americans. So this is the problem we've been tackling. And and the way we tackle it is, as you said, we've built this marketplace. So a two-sided marketplace with hospitals on one end and the pharma companies on the other. And the idea behind this marketplace is to make it super easy for hospitals all around the world to offer the right trials to their patients. So it's a little bit like the same way Airbnb helps you find the perfect place to stay, we help hospitals find the right trials for their patients.
0: What's the root cause of this problem? Why does this exist?
1: So the what's super interesting is the root cause is actually not well known at all. So if you talk to pharma folks, typically everyone will agree that this is the number one problem of the industry. When you start to dig in a bit to understand what's the root cause, it's a lot less obvious. And it actually took us close to four years to really figure out what we believe is the root cause. When we initially started the business, we started as a SaaS for pharma that was view it as a CRM where they could identify what are the hospitals with clinical research experience, and they could select those hospitals in a way that was more data-driven and less relationship-based. And what we realized was that no matter the amount of data that you would provide the pharma companies, they would still go to the same super large academic hospitals that do the majority of the research. And so the root cause actually is that if you look at historical data, the 5% top hospitals in the world run about 70 plus percent of trials. So if as a patient you're not treated in one of those hospitals, chances are that you have no way of
0: participating to a trial. Wow. Those are staggering numbers. How come the pharma industry and, and healthcare as a whole is not freaking out? Cause this sounds like a big problem. These numbers are insane. How come people aren't, you know, panicking over this? Cause it sounds really bad.
1: So I think they're realizing how big of a problem it is. What is difficult as a pharma company is obviously you need to solve those problems that are not only ethical problems but problems, even in terms of the overall ROI of research, the issue is because the industry is super regulated and for very good reasons they tend to be very concerned about the idea of trying out new approaches that not only might not make a dent in terms of the speed of patients enrolled in the study but might actually put them in a really bad position if the study is not conducted in a way that
0: is ethically proper etc Now, if I remember right, right around or in the middle of COVID as the vaccine started to roll out, this became a very big conversation and diversity of the clinical trials for the drugs. That was a big conversation. Did that impact your business in a positive way? Did that validate the thesis that you had about the company and the problem?
1: Yes, very much so. And actually the FDA ended up moving with now mandates for pharma companies to enroll diverse patients in their trials. And I think what has really helped us with COVID wasn't necessarily a direct effect, but something that came after in the sense that initially pharma companies during COVID were thinking, okay, so we can't even go to hospitals anymore. At least most patients can not go to hospitals. Can we find a way of going to the patients directly? So you had this whole trove of companies that tried to actually bring trials to patients. And as you would imagine, If you're in complex diseases, like in cancer, it's virtually impossible to really be treating patients in their homes. So what ended up happening is the industry as a whole somewhat came back from this idea of treating patients in their homes. But they also realized that they can't completely go back to the old way of doing things. So now they're looking for something that is in between where they can actually reach patients where they live but in a way that is not maybe as exotic as going to the patient's home. And this is kind of the the neat middle ground where we sit, where we reach patients where they are, but we reach them through their community hospital, not directly in their homes.
0: I've interviewed a lot of founders with the marketplace business model. I'm a huge fan of that business model, but all of them have told me that there's this constant challenge in the early days of the chicken and the egg problem of, you know, which do you recruit first or which do you focus on first? So for you, what did you focus on first? Was it hospitals or patients or did you just go at both of them at the same time?
1: Yeah, it's a really tricky one. And I remember being always a bit frustrated when I was talking to VCs and they would be asking the question of, okay, so are you site first? Are you pharma first? And after a few years, I feel like the answer is always more complex than one or the other. And it's maybe going to be the hospitals for three months and then it's going to be the pharma companies for three months. So initially we went to sites with the promise of we're going to get you access to more trials. And we used this initial, say, pool of a few hundred sites to go to pharma companies and say, look, we have those sites, they're amazing. They're super motivated. If you have trials, we can get them to their patients. And this got us the first few trials. And then what we've seen since then is the more trials we have on the platform, the more obvious it becomes in terms of value proposition for hospitals. So we now have about a hundred new trials every year, and this has really been driving the growth of the number of sites on the
0: platform. Can you share any numbers that just highlight the growth that you're seeing today? Yeah, so we
1: work with a bit over half of the top pharma companies, so over 20 pharma companies. And we work with about 3,500 sites in over 50 countries. And if you think about what it means in terms of revenue, over the past year, we've about grown by 600%. And even though we're pretty happy about these numbers, what is really exciting to me is that to your point on marketplaces, It's only starting to feel like the flywheel is starting to
0: accelerate. What do you attribute to that growth? I'm sure any founder listening in is thinking, yes, I want that. I want to grow at 600% this year. What do you think you've gotten right?
1: I think what we've gotten right is we've been able to create a model really from first principles in the market that is super crowded, but we went from people virtually not understanding what we're doing to now pharma companies really starting to get it and feel like if they want this model we're the only one in the market that is offering this
0: how did you go about building trust and credibility early on because we're not just talking about like an e-commerce tool that they can just add to their website and you have a chat bot. This is serious stuff. It, it's health related. It, it's a serious business and a serious problem. How did you build trust and credibility as a startup to get these big pharma companies to to really trust in you and believe that you can help them solve their problems? So I think there's a couple elements to this.
1: The first one that is non product related is you need to have experts internally that the pharma are going to trust. And so initially, because as you would expect, we didn't have a super mature product. We had an amazing customer success team with dozens of years of pharma experience that was taking the pharma companies through the process that was partly product and partly still human-based. And this took us through the first batch of, say, five to 10 trials. And along the way, we really started to understand what does the pharma company want to see? What data points do they need to really create, to your point, this trust with sites? And this has been our focus probably for the last three years exclusively. So if you think about all the different bricks that marketplaces build, I think what was quite unique to us is we ended up focusing on the discovery piece, on the matching piece for a really long period of time. We're only now after about three years starting to expand to support everything you would expect in terms of the admin work, the legal work, the pricing, the payment, et cetera. But the trust point was so complex that we ended up spending
0: all of our time for the first few years. And you're about eight years into this journey. At what point did you really start to feel like you are gaining traction and, and felt like, hey, yeah, th- there's something here. There's definitely a business here.
1: So the first few years were tough because we were on the first model until 2020. So we pivoted after four years. And when I say pivoted, it was a hard pivot. We went back to... No clients, no revenue, no product, no nothing. So we had to start back from scratch in 2020 after a few years, which was, as you would expect, pretty difficult on the team. And since then we've started feeling the traction very rapidly. I think the new model was resonating enough that we did more revenue on year two with the new model than we did on year four
0: of the previous one. Hmm. Super interesting. What about your market category? How do you think about it? Is it a clinical trial marketplace? Is it a clinical trial diversity platform? What is that market category?
1: We thought about it a lot and and we tested a lot of different names. We ended up landing on marketplace, which initially was something that was terribly misleading to pharma. When we talked to them about marketplaces, they were basically thinking stock market. It was a, they weren't really getting the concept. But at the same time nothing really worked much better so we ended up going with marketplace and trying to educate them on what it means what is a marketplace drawing comparison with airbnb with what they know and i think we're only at the beginning of really creating this category and we thought quite a bit about should we try to fit it to an existing category but this felt not only more counterproductive but it felt even harder than trying to
0: create our own. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 35 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? So I think what I've learned about fundraising is
1: that we often say you need to educate VCs, but I think you can only go so far in terms of education. I think it's actually often impossible to get a a VC excited if you're in a really complex industry that they're not passionate about. And obviously I think we could have done a better job of telling a better story, but I think at the end of the day, you need to find the investors that have done their homework, the investors that really thought about the problem space from a first principle basis. Otherwise you end up with either VCs that are following trends, or you end up with VCs that even though they tell you what you're building sounds amazing, you're never going to be able to get them from not knowing anything about this space to
0: being passionate enough about it to invest. And did you find investors locally there or did you have to pull from Silicon Valley and and U.S. investors? So we did our
1: seed round in Europe and we did our A round in the U.S. And to the point I was making just previously, we raised with obvious ventures in the U.S. And it was a really amazing raise for us because we found someone there who had thought about the space so much that they actually ended up pitching us what we were building. He had been working on the space for a really long time and he started pitching this idea of a marketplace. And after five minutes, I told him, well, great, this is what we're building. And we ended up signing after a week or so
0: without ever meeting. So we ended up meeting a year or so after we raised. Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself?
1: I think the number one piece of advice would be partnering with enough clients so that you're not overfitting to begin with. I think what is really tricky with enterprises, obviously you need partners and you can't start with 10 different partners, but at the same time, what we ended up doing was we focused so much on the single one that we ended up building something that was super customized to them which was a blessing and a curse, because we ended up getting early traction, but we ended up doing 90% of our revenue with them. And we actually then had to backtrack a ton to be able to understand what is completely specific to this pharma company, and how can we actually build a product that fits a need in the market and not
0: just for a single customer. Final question for you before we wrap. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? So the big picture for us
1: is making it as easy for any hospital in the world to offer trials to their patients as it is to book a place on Airbnb. If you think about where we are today as an industry, we really couldn't be any further from this in the sense that beyond the discovery, the matching problem that we discussed, once a pharma company and a hospital have decided that they want to work together, it basically takes six months before all the paperwork is done and the doctor can actually offer the trial to their patients. So our perspective on this is, if you really want to increase patient access by say an order of magnitude, you really need to completely reinvent the collaboration model between pharma and hospitals. And I think this is where marketplaces are an amazing solution where you can build the whole user experience in a way where from discovery all the way to the partnership being sealed, This takes a week
0: and not a year. Amazing. I love the vision. All right. We are up on time. So we'll have to wrap here before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? So they can find me on LinkedIn.
1: The name is Courage d'Amarpana. I'm probably the only one, so it shouldn't be too difficult.
0: (laughs) And we'll make sure to uh, have that name spelled out and we'll, we'll link to your LinkedIn as well at the end. Exactly. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been a blast. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I know it's going to be a hit with the audience. So really appreciate it and wish you and the team the best of luck in executing on this amazing vision. Thank you so much. All right. Keep in touch.